0: Everyone. Welcome to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode of Sources, I interviewed John von Hiking, professor of political science at Lethbridge University in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Among his wide and various fields of expertise, Professor von Hiking writes about political friendship. In fact, among his most recent works, he examines one of the West's greatest politicians, a man who exercised genuine friendship throughout his political career, even in the most demanding of times, including war. That politician was Winston Churchill. And Churchill is the subject of our episode. I recorded the interview from Kane Academy's headquarters in Falls Church, Virginia. John Von Hiking joined me from his home in Canada. In fact, well into the interview, you'll hear ever so briefly that his faithful friend, the family dog, Kara, joined the podcast as well. A parcel post delivery was in process at the front door of when hiking home, a new book for John's library. And Kara, who knows her book-loving master all too well, was warning John of its arrival. Our team thought that was a lovely glimpse into the life of our guest. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Well, John von Hiking, uh, welcome to Kane Academy. It's great
1: to see you. Thank you, Andrew. Nice to be here.
0: This is, uh, by the way, our first recorded international podcast at Kane Academy. <laughs> we've uh, we've had Roger Scruton uh, from from England, but he was here in D.C. when I interviewed him. Oh, yeah. And then my uh, colleague Joe Wood, who's one of our fellows, was in Paris, and he interviewed uh, Remy Brog and uh, Pierre uh, Menon. But on-site there, this is the first time we've, we've crossed the border and <laughs> yeah. done an international podcast country to country. So thanks for making that happen. Uh, for oh, all our. It's, it's, it's my
1: pleasure. It's, yeah. The world is opening up, I
0: guess. There you go. <laughs> uh, for our <laughs> listeners, uh, as I said in my introduction, uh, Professor Von Hiking is in uh, Lethbridge, uh, Alberta, Canada. So we're just really so grateful that he could join us today. John, your work is uh, rich and uh, various, and as I was thinking about our interview, it was hard for me to decide you know, what we we're gonna talk about. I, I could've had a smorgasbord, kind of a grab bag, but I decided to zero in on one of the several dense topics, and I thought today our listeners would benefit from a conversation about Winston Churchill, uh, about whom you're an expert, you've written a, a wonderful book, um, and the book is called um, Comprehensive Judgment and Absolute Selflessness, Winston Churchill on Politics as Friendship. It came out a few years ago from uh, St. Augustine's Press. I've also read some great articles online by you, some speeches, you've, or at least one speech that you've given, and a couple other things you commented on regarding Churchill. Churchill is one of uh, the biggest figures of the 20th century, so teachers at classical schools, uh, most, and most of our listeners are, are teachers in secondary schools, Uh, We'll we'll be interested in this discussion because of its relationship to history, but also because you bring to uh, the study of Winston Churchill uh, a profound uh, set of insights born from your uh, expertise in political philosophy, and so you talk about the politics and the philosophy of friendship, which is really a a terribly interesting area, uh, formed uh, in part by classic works that our listeners will be interested in, like uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. So let's start here. Um, You have a beautifully classical understanding of friendship. And it's uh, largely forged by your study of of the work, just like the ethics. And uh, to your mind, if if I understand you correctly, to your mind, friendship is the form of politics. If I have that right, I wonder if you could expound on that.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I mean, for the classics, like Plato and Aristotle, um, friendship is sort of the, the... highest expression of the good life, right? So Aristotle, in his Nicomachean Ethics, right? he devotes not just one book on, on friendship. He devotes only one book to justice, but he devotes two books to friendship. And, you know, if you've read the Ethics, you'll know that it's near the end and the whole construction of the work is a kind of ascent to higher things. And so he leads the highest things to near the end. That's that's friendship. And so for him, friendship is part of our not just our natures as, as human beings, but it's it's a practice. It's something we need to work at, and it comes about and is kind of the outcome you might say of a general, you know, classical appreciation. Of the cultivation of oneself, the cultivations of one's moral and intellectual and spiritual lives, and it comes out of also out of a recognition that you know we're not solitary creatures; we're, we're meant to live together and in union with others. Um, the Virtuous acts, whether it be courage or even justice for that matter, almost all of them are in some ways other-directed. Um, and so, friendship is, in a way, uh, the, the, the expression of a fully functioning self, a fully functioning, cultivated soul. And I mean, the, the analogy I sometimes draw for my students is that with the way Aristotle understands our humanity, you know, if, you, if you're not really that serious about cultivating your moral and intellectual character, you're kind of like a car that's running with maybe a couple of pistons right Not all the cylinders are going. but when all the cylinders are going, then you know you have the virtues are, are kind of all working together and friendship is the expression of all those cylinders going. And so friendship is in a way the expression of the good life. And with the classics, the connection with politics, I mean, Aristotle famously says that uh, homonoia, which is kind of a shorthand for what we would call political friendship, homonoia is like friendship. I mean, Aristotle is quite often seen as the philosopher not just of friendship, but of political friendship, the polis and the community therein. But he's also kind of cagey about it. He doesn't quite give you a clear picture of what that political friendship is. And I think what he's doing is sort of suggesting to us that yes, there is such a thing called political friendship, but you know what? If you're not practicing the higher types of friendship, then don't expect the, the kind of, by analogy, lower type political friendship to operate. So when I suggest that that friendship is the form of politics, um, political homonoia, political friendship, consensus, these sorts of expressions we use uh, to describe political association, they kind of model themselves on the higher type of friendship without attaining it. You can never attain it, right? Aristotle has his famous criticism of uh, Plato's Republic of Book 5 where everything's held in communism. And Aristotle says, that goes too far. That actually makes friendship too close to politics and actually undermines both friendship and politics. So again, it's it's not a kind of a direct sort of precise formula, but he is suggesting that there is something about a political association that takes its bearings from these higher types of friendship. And of course, you find a common theme throughout the classics that uh, among friends, um, friends share all things in common. Right. That, that's an ancient Greek proverb that the Pythagoreans sort of popularized. And you can see that in Plato. And even Aristotle, despite his criticisms, affirms it. You see it also in Cicero. So the classic, um, whether it's in the classic Greece or ancient Rome, the, there is a consistent affirmation, not only of friendship as part of the good life or maybe the, the expression of the good life, Um, but also political friendship as the the standards of what political society is.
0: Maybe um, I I wanna shift gears here in just a minute to kind of concretely connect friendship to politics and politics to what we in the modern world recognizes as politics. But before we get there, uh, help us by um, uh, distinguishing between different kinds of friendships, and if you could give some examples, that'd be really helpful. So, you want to distinguish yeah. between lower and higher, yeah. uh, and and uh, tagging political friendship as lower than some other forms of friendship, what are yeah. those higher forms of friendship? What, what's important, yeah. say, to Aristotle and to you, that would be um, a standard somehow, uh, or a higher plane in the hierarchy of friendships?
1: Yeah. Well, Aristotle has this famous three-fold, threefold classification of friendships. So he kind of starts in his discussion. First, there's utility friendships, which are largely economic transactions. But it's anything to do with the exchange of benefits. Um, so there's a certain reciprocity there. Um, the second he mentions is friendships of pleasure, where you, you love someone kind of for their charm, for the good times you have. Um, and then he gets to loving the character of another. It's usually called virtue friendship. And he makes, and it makes an interesting comment. He says that in the first two, strictly speaking, they're actually not friendship. Because you actually don't love the person themselves. Friendship is kind of incidental there. It's only in the third kind, the highest kind, where you love the character of, the, of your friend before you. Um, it's not to say that you gain no pleasure. Of course, it's pleasurable. Yeah. It's not just to say it's not useful. Of course, it's useful. But it's the love of the other for their own sakes, for the cultivation of character between the two of you. That's the that's the that's the mark. Now, where does politics fit into there? Everywhere. Politics is um, not as high as virtue, friendship. You know, we don't think of politicians as seeing the good of others and the moral character of others as their primary concern. But in some ways, politics and the connections people make in politics um, kind of takes in the other kind. Political friendship is useful. There has to be an exchange of favors. Um, and then for many people in politics, it's just plain fun. It's pleasurable, too. So I would suggest one way to kind of a, a shorthand way of, of distinguishing sort of the virtue high friendship that Aristotle describes from the political, say, lower. Politics may be lower, but in some ways it's more comprehensive. That It has to attend to the, the utility and even to the pleasures. And part of what makes politics so fraught is that utility pleasure and virtue they don't always line up and there's lots of tensions between them and that's why there's also um, an appreciation amongst the classics that friendships among people who are active in politics are quite difficult and can be rare yeah because things get in the way i mean i guess kind of applying to the modern world you know the classic objection to say a claim that I make that political friendship is actually a useful category the, 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 the common objection that I get is that well no politics is about interests that people have interests and friendships are just kind of transitory and useful insofar as they let you advance your interests so there's all, so the, 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 the general understanding is that self interest is always in tension with with these these friendships so i mean in in my churchill work you know i have to deal with this question especially with um, churchill and franklin roosevelt for example Um, yeah which
0: is a a good good opportunity to kind of pivot towards that we i I very much appreciate those comments you just made about uh how uh easily politics is uh seems to be reducible to interests. Uh, if you mention friendship and politics, I think a lot of people cynically would say no, you know, factions, you know, yeah, yeah, machination, yeah. you know, background yeah. cronyism, things like that. Yeah. But, uh, if,
1: you, if, you, if you want a friend in Washington, D.C., get yourself a dog. That's a, <laughs> yes. That's, that's right. Truman comments yeah. uh, and uh, but I think this is
0: a very uh, f- uh, potentially very fruitful kind of discussion. I, um, my family and I were in uh, Normandy in 2017, and uh, uh, we went by the cemeteries, uh, the American cemetery and the Canadian. And uh, oh, yeah. obviously, we spent more time at the American because it was yeah. you know, personally more meaningful. But yeah. uh, I was yeah. reminded about the tremendous contribution of Canada and the tremendous sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, the Canadian soldiers uh, and Marines made uh, during World War II, uh, and um, we forget. I think I don't know about Canadians, but I think Americans forget about their their neighbors to the north. They're yeah. they're more than just allies. These are people who care yeah. out their lives for uh, for the for the cause and, uh, and for yeah. the sake of their neighbors in Europe and uh, and in you know in friendship, shoulder to shoulder with uh, with Americans uh, there in Normandy and yeah. uh, elsewhere. So let's pivot to uh, the the focus of your uh, wonderful studies, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, who is a complicated, uh, full of life, uh, brilliant, uh, multi-talented man, uh, and um, uh, not altogether successful right at the the start of World War II in getting getting help from uh, America and getting everything he really wanted from uh, FDR, but he finally did succeed but um you have uh, spent a lot of time on that so uh, talking about the the friendship that was forged between Churchill and, and lots of people from the time he was a, a young backbencher all the way to the time he was prime minister and beyond yeah. so what tell us tell us about Winston Churchill Churchill's capacity for friendship and uh, uh, lend some insight by uh, giving us several salient examples, you know, and it would be great to hear some examples from the different stages of his life, maybe as a soldier in the Boer Wars to the time when he was, uh, you know, struggling uh, as a backbencher to the time when almost miraculously he became prime minister, you know? Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, you know, he became prime minister, and one of the one of the things that enabled him to become prime minister is because he was really probably the only conservative politician that Labour was willing to work with. Hmm. They couldn't stand Chamberlain. And, of course, Halifax wasn't a good candidate because he was in the House of Lords. Um, and so the fact that they kind of liked him <laughs> exp- explains a lot while well, he was able to craft a national coalition so a lot of it had to do with personal relations and so one of the points that i try to make in my book on churchill is that friendship isn't a powerful powerful tool of political statecraft it's it's more than a tool but leave it for now we'll just restrict ourselves to thinking about it as a tool so you make friends if you want to get into politics Who's your friend? Who are your supporters? Because politics, like many other areas of life, is about making friends, exchanging favors, remembering. And so he cultivated that. And I think as he got older, he um, became better at it in some ways. And I'll give you a few examples. Um, So in the... Early, not I guess the the teens of the twentieth century, he was in um, cabinet. He was was a liberal at the time, and he was in the cabinet. And he was in the cabinet with the man who was probably his closest friend, who was Lord Birkenhead, Lord Birkenhead, Effie Smith, and uh, I mean Clementine Churchill's wife couldn't stand Birkenhead. Because he 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 just aggravated Churchill's bad habits, horse race betting, <laughs> drinking, you know, all all the bad stuff that you know men get into at that, at that age, right? And and unfortunately Birkenhead uh, dies quite young uh, because he's an alcoholic. He, he it's, the, it's the drink that leads him into the grave, and some of Churchill's most moving. Um, writings is, are, include his lamentations his grief that he expresses for Birkenhead when he loses them um, but one of the things that he does with Birkenhead and I think this is in 1911 so you might be familiar um, with kind of the tradition of men's clubs yeah. in Great Britain that started back uh, probably as as early as 200 years before that, and one of the most famous of the clubs was that of Samuel Johnson that yeah. he created. It was called The Club, Yeah. in fact. So, you know, we have the Bible, we have the Republic, and here's The Club, uh-huh. and that's Johnson's. And... Churchill and Birkenhead wanted to gain entrance into that because, of course, you know, it's very well established and it's very useful as well to get into that, Uh, and they they deny them. And so both Churchill and and Birkenhead say, okay, fine, we're going to form our own club, because that's part of the game too in in London, so we're going to call it The Other Club. (laughs) (laughs) And The Other Club became quite pronounced. Uh, had a lot of notable figures. The the, the main rule, um, it, it included, uh, there's a dining club. I think it met every Sunday night at the Savoy in London. Not too bad. And not too bad. So you had to be somebody significant, uh, mostly political figures, but not only. Um, I think even... Later on, uh, P.G. Woodhouse became a member, but it, because, of course, if you know the P.G. Woodhouse uh, novels of, of Jeeves and Wooster, um, Wooster is a member of the club. <laughs> I didn't remember that. Didn't, yeah, yeah, the drones. Yeah. yeah, so the club life is beautifully portrayed in the in the Jeeves and Wooster uh, novels. Uh, Jeeves is even a member of a club. So anyway, Woodhouse actually becomes a member of the other club, I, I, I can't remember when, and apparently he, he had no idea why. It was sort of like he, he was walking into this alien terrain. <laughs> People had these expectations of him and he wasn't really sure what to make of that. But, uh, but be that as it may. Um, so the other club is a club of just convivium. Yes, we'll talk politics. Yes, we'll talk everything. But partisanship is kind of secondary. Um, the, the, the primary virtue of membership was being what the Brits called being clubbable, which is conversable, being interesting, being a good conversant, and, and so forth. So it's a place where there's a like certain leisureliness, a certain freedom from the, 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 the matters of the day, the necessities, and that becomes a staple of Churchill's um, life and also his political life. Um, another interesting aspect of the other club that, um, that goes on is that a lot of the members of who become part of the war cabinet and later on, actually after the war, part of Churchill's cabinet had been members of the other club. So the other club, in addition to sort of transcending kind of political um, life, also became the nucleus, you might say, of the British government. Dur- during World War Two, so, during and after, okay, during and after, yeah, yeah. So that, I mean, there you, you kind of see how informal relationships, networking, as we say today, uh, plays a role in uh, becomes the kernel, you might say, of our political life. I always point out to my students: if you look at you know the, the leaders of industry, if you look at leaders in politics. Pay attention to who their friends are. Chances are, their closest advisors, their closest friends in these positions of power,s were their friends from college and university. That's where they make their friends, a lot of the time. Well, um, the, so that's that's one example,
0: mm-hmm.
1: an early early example of Churchill. So he kind of had it figured out pretty yeah. early on. Yeah, that, um, that's really helpful.
0: Uh, why don't we um, explore a little bit their, their friendship with FDR? Yeah. Now the um, it, it, this is a point that's so obvious. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but I think it, it still might be worth mentioning that the the friendship is forged in a time of war, and yeah. it's a war yeah. that was brought uh, by way of bombing. It, it was brought to England and you yeah. know to London. So uh, Churchill knew this uh, up close and, and personally. Uh, uh, World War One. You know, didn't touch the American uh, coastlines. It it didn't come to our our land. It it, uh, just devastated the continent and, of course, a whole generation of uh, the the British population. But but here we are again with another world war, and and Churchill uh, is really up against it. I mean, he and the Brits their their backs are against the wall. Um, um, it so. is, this, is, the, is that, uh, cr- that context of war, in terms of being the context for their friendship, comparable to what we all recognize as, say, the battlefield, or a foxhole, or a uh, boot camp, as the context in which uh, friendship among soldiers and Marines and the like are, are, you know, mm-hmm. uh, are forged? Is, it, is, is that a good analogy to
1: make? I, th- I think it's a it's a decent analogy. It goes a long way, but I don't think it explains everything, because um, for Churchill, I mean Churchill, of course, had a warrior soul, right? Yeah. Um, after after even in World War One, after the disaster of Gallipoli, um, he he actually gets booted out of cabinet, and he ends up commanding a battalion, um, in, on the continent. I think it was in Belgium, maybe France, um, and he was actually um, very. Popular with his um, the soldiers whom he commanded, there there was this kind of comradeship that he developed. And even um, in World War II, he um, I'm trying to remember the, the nickname that he gave them. But anybody who he dealt with in, in England, like in the in British politics, who had served in World War One, um, he kind of gave them that extra ounce of respect. Right, they had cred, so they they had that kind of battlefield comradeship, and of course, they you know and paid for it as well. So uh, he could take them. He 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 gave them. He was much more serious to people like that than people who who hadn't. Um, but at the same time the military uh i mean there's a difference between the military art and the political art i think i mean that's kind of a classical distinction right um your your soldiers win the war but your statesmen have to lose peace and i think churchill had to learn that it didn't come naturally to him it's it's it's, it's an insight that he kind of learned i would argue Um, in the 1930s before World War II when he was writing his biography on his ancestor, the Duke of Marlborough. Mm -hmm. And when when you read the the biography of the Duke of Marlborough, here you have uh, 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 the the great war leader of the British standing up to the big despot in Central Europe. Um, At that time, that would have been Louis XIV. In the 1930s, we can we know who the Central European despot is, using strategies and political maneuverings in much the same way that Churchill was going to. I mean, it's really quite remarkable, the parallels between the two. And I think also um, Churchill drew some political lessons from that. And I think he realized that, um, that he, in, in some ways his biography is a bit of a hagiography. He's trying to kind of reclaim the, the, the reputation of his ancestor, but at the same time, he has a critique of his ancestor, and he thinks that his ancestor was a little bit politically naive. Because as as England's savior, he also uh, Marbo also becomes uh, the biggest threat uh, to the crown of England. Right? It's sort of the, the problem of, of your kind of the great man problem. Right? If you have somebody that that popular, that big then uh, the queen won't be so happy. And that was, a, that. he explains, that's kind of the tragic downfall of Marlborough. And so that allows Churchill to reflect a little bit more on not so much the military art, but the political art. Mm-hmm. And another aspect element that comes out of, of his reading of Marlborough is that Marlborough was successful precisely because of his friendships. And the most important one, he, actually there were two, uh, the, the, the first one was with uh, Eugene or again of Savoy, who, um, you know, he had the southern flank, you might say. If Marlborough had the northern and, and eastern flank of attacking Louis XIV, Eugene had the southern flank. So if you think of Churchill um, trying to kind of go up the spine of Italy and, and spend time um, in North Africa, Churchill referred to that strategy as going after the belly of the crocodile, right? Do that before you go to the Normandy invasion because if you go to Normandy too soon, then you'll end up with another Gallipoli.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So friendships for Churchill played an important um, tool for statecraft. But I think he also understood that the aims of politics itself had to be something like friendship. And those you find in the close friendships of statesmen, those you find also in the sort of forms of political association that need to come about after the wars are done. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, That's uh, that's a very
0: interesting point. I want to talk a little bit about the distinction between the one-on-one friendships that Churchill had mm-hmm. and the friendship, if we can talk yeah. about that, uh, or if, if it's proper to say friendship with the, the body politic of Great Britain. But let, Let's go to that first yeah. one. I, I'd like to hear a little bit about, um, how, you know, how many times did FDR and Churchill actually meet in person mm. or, you know, uh, how extensively, anyway?
1: Yeah, the, the number of times weren't that many. Uh, you are kind of stumping me on that one. That's actually right. something they should know. Yeah. Um, but it'd be under twelve. And and then uh, um, besides
0: one-on-one meetings, uh, did they yeah. do they correspond by way of letter? Did they pick up the phone and talk oh, to yeah. each other a lot? You know, what did yeah. how, what what did the media uh, use to, yeah. to keep their friendship going?
1: Yeah, well, certainly by letter, uh, especially at the beginning when they're just kind of well, Churchill's kind of courting Roosevelt, basically. I was going to say when they're introducing each other, but it's basically Churchill courting. Phone calls as well. Um, But Churchill was always um, insistent on having face-to-face meetings. Um, And so, you know, I think a couple times I cite a statement, he says, you know, phone call is fine for conducting business, but there's something about the political art that has to be beyond conducting business. Yeah. If you, you really have to get to know somebody, and the only way you get to know somebody is one-on-one meetings. And I'll give you a couple of examples of, of, of that in his relationship with Roosevelt. The very first time, well, the very first time they met was in the early 1920s, I think just near the conclusion of World War I. Um, Rose, Roosevelt was, I think, assistant secretary of the Navy and is in New York, and Churchill and Roosevelt met. Um, Roosevelt remembered, Churchill did not, so they had to remind Churchill that, <laughs> no, you actually met Roosevelt back then, so, you know, little, you want to a, little it, <laughs> a little awkward moment there. little awkward, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it, it, you know, it kind of, when, when, when Churchill indeed did um, uh, sort of reveal his, his, his forgetfulness, it did kind of uh, annoy Roosevelt, but, you know, they let that slide. Um, but their first first meeting as heads of government or state was off the coast of Newfoundland uh, when they had a secret oh, yes. summit, uh, and that was the uh, kind of start of the Atlantic Charter. And what's interesting about that is that um, it wasn't just them, it was also some of the highest people um, in the military. So chiefs of staff and also, uh, you know, various uh, layers. And it's kind of the beginning of the marriage between the military staffs of the two countries. And, And in fact, Churchill doted over the details of the worship service that they had on the deck of the Prince of Wales. He chose the hymns. Um, you know, the, the, where they put the flags, this, this sort of stuff. So he is very interested, very concerned just with the ritual part of it too. Uh, the other part of uh, that, that meeting off the coast of Newfoundland was that there wasn't really much of an agenda. It was more of a let's get to know each other. Yeah. A lot was done, you know, they came up with a dr- statement that sort of was the foundation of the Atlantic Charter. I yeah. mean, it's really remarkable, right? The Atlantic Charter becomes NATO eventually. Um, and this was the first rate,
0: this was the first meeting between the two. So our listeners have heard okay, it first, yeah, yeah that the, the Canadians yeah. really were responsible for forging the alliance between Great Britain yeah. and uh, America.
1: Well, th- 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 there's actually um, a lot of truth to that. I mean, I'm, I mean, Canadians always like to because we're so small. We always like to pretend that we have an outsized influence. But here, there's actually some truth to it yeah. because um, I mean, Roosevelt and Churchill became friends, but they didn't do so in isolation. They needed intermediaries, yeah. and one of the key intermediaries was actually the Canadian Prime Minister Mackenzie King, who had friend had been friendships with both men. Um, for many years prior to that, and so he could actually—I mean, he, he actually spent a lot of time. I mean, he spent more time with Roosevelt and with Churchill, it, with himself, than Roosevelt and Churchill did with one another during the war. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, and of when, course they had—sorry—they had—they had summits in, in Quebec City. They had yeah. two. Um, so he—he he, was—he was an important intermediary mm-hmm. um, between the two. Um, But there is no there is no real agenda for their meeting off the coast of Newfoundland. We we
0: we all recognize that uh, sometimes people just hit it off, like you meet somebody and you go wow this you know just we were became friends immediately. Uh, I'd say more often than that probably people experience you got to work at a friendship, and uh, you know even even a long term friendship requires investment and you know listening and uh, you know is a mutual investment of, of consideration and. And time, and you know, gifts, and things like that. What, right. what was, what, what was sort of natural, and what was uh, necessary to, to kind of work at the friendship between those two men? Right? Yeah. Oh, there's, there's,
1: there's, there's, so much to that question. Yeah. Um, I guess what's natural is that they're both maybe, maybe guys. Yeah. And so already there was a, a kind of affinity between the two. Um, I think the fact that they're both, you know, world leaders. You're, you're in a very select company when you're a world leader, right? There, there are very few who can kind of be friends with a Churchill or a Roosevelt because there's very few who actually have that experience. Um, so just being in that position is a kind of source of sympathy, you might say. Um, different, I mean, they had very different personalities. So they had to work on... Sort of getting, getting closer to the other one despite their personalities. I mean, Roosevelt was you know, famously uh, kind of reserved, not reserved, but, you know, there's always something that he was hiding. Right? He always had this kind of personality of he never showed his cards, huh. where there's something more limpid with, with Churchill. Right? Churchill was very open. Uh, he's very sentimental. He wept frequently. He wept at you know worship services, and yeah. he he you know, he always made jokes about how frequently he, he he wept. I don't know if Roosevelt wept. I, I don't know. Uh, and of course, the, the Churchill famously drank. Yeah, and I mean they they enjoyed a good drink. Um, and there's a kind of a funny story, or I guess uh, anecdote. That when Churchill spent uh, up almost six weeks at the White House right after the Pearl Harbor attacks, um, you know they do their business sort of in the day, and they had to work around Churchill's unusual uh, daily schedule yeah. of, of you know he wouldn't go to bed until late in the late in the morning, right three or four o'clock in the morning, and would tire everyone else out, including Roosevelt. Um, but you know in the evening they would they would relax they would enjoy each other's company and roosevelt would offer because he's a host he would offer to he'd make cocktails and, and churchill just hated the cocktails that oh. roosevelt made. <laughs> they were just the worst tasting things <laughs> you could imagine and because you know because of the, the cocktails of, because of the barkeep
0: or because of the american form of the cocktail or what, what, what? I think
1: yeah roosevelt just couldn't make a martini <laughs> And so I think I think more than a few White House plants got a drink. (laughs) Oh,
0: (laughs) that's so funny.
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's so funny. Yeah. I suppose the biggest thing they had to work at was, you know, despite being allies and very friendly towards each other. I mean, there's great personal respect, but of course, as leaders of separate nations, those nations had very different interests. Yeah, you know, of course they had the key interests, not only of defeating Hitler, but also sort of pr- promoting uh, liberty um, in a post World War yeah. uh, world. But of course, Roosevelt was a big critic of the British Empire, and Churchill was a big defender of the British yeah. Empire. And by the time that. You know, Roosevelt was finished with Churchill after the war. The British Empire was nowhere near when it was yeah. before the war. And a lot of that was, you know, the war itself, but a lot of that was American policy. Yeah. Now, was it, a,
0: uh, how significant an obstacle to friendship was it that yeah. the, the Brits had been at the war for, you know, couple of years when uh, the Americans yeah. finally got involved. I mean, and, and here yeah. here comes this alliance and the Americans bring to the table economic, uh, potential productive powers that, yeah. you know, lap everybody during the war, but I mean, they're you know, they're just going to come to the table as Americans do, and yeah. uh, they're, they're going to be the big guy in the room in spite of the fact Absolutely. that the Brits have been, you know, defending themselves already. So what, did, did that contribute to yeah. the the requirements of friendship building between the two? Yeah.
1: Well, of course, Roosevelt was in a tough spot, right? Um, Because, you know, he had to deal with a very significant um, portion of uh, popular opinion that didn't want to go to war, Yeah. right? The so-called isolationists. He himself, I don't think, was isolationist. He himself probably understood fairly early on that Nazi Germany was a threat to the United States um, but he had to convince public opinion and and various other opinion makers and and leaders in the United States. So when they finally started sniffing around one another, um, one of uh, Roosevelt's biggest concerns was just, well, what kind of leader is Churchill, right? Because you get reports. You have to remember um, Joseph Kennedy was the ambassador to London at, uh, at the start of the war. And he hated Churchill, huh. and he and he was also kind of an isolationist, and he didn't think that the, the uh, that the Nazis were were such a big threat. Um, so he was advising Roosevelt, and um, and I suppose there are other people doing this that Churchill was drunk. Churchill was was just an unreliable leader, and by the way, he wasn't going to last very long anyway. And they're going to replace Churchill with somebody who's going to make a a, a truce. With Hitler, you know that was kind of like that was the, the, the deliberations uh, at, the, at the very start. So Roosevelt sends Harry Hopkins, who was another of Roosevelt's close friends. Harry Hopkins was instrumental in the creation of the New Deal and the administration of the New Deal. And Harry Hopkins actually lives in the White House. He's a very unusual figure, um, but anyway, he's. Roosevelt's probably most trusted confidant, and he sends Roosevelt, sends Harry Hopkins to London, so basically to suss Churchill out. What kind of person is this? And he spends a good month, month and a half, maybe longer, um, meeting not only with Churchill, mostly with Churchill, but with other significant figures, just basically as a reconnaissance mission to figure out, okay, what is, what is the situation here, and how serious are, is the British leadership. And I don't know how well Churchill fully appreciated what Hopkins's mission was, but at any rate, uh, Churchill satisfied Hopkins, who passed along the message to Roosevelt. No, he's, he's serious. He's the real deal. He's not going to back down. He's the real deal. And he has the political acumen to do it. So regardless of, of all the, the negative messaging coming from people like Joseph Kennedy, it's just not true.
0: Wow. That's, yeah. a, that's a great story. Uh, yeah. And, come, yeah. And just
1: as a, a, if I may, just a, f- a final point, when is one of the uh, concluding banquets that they held in Hopkins's honor? and Hopkins, this is when, when, when an example of making Churchill weep like a baby, um, Hopkins' a response to a toast, where he quotes an unusual, a, a, a lesser-known book of the Old Testament, the book of Ruth, um, and his, his line is, "We shall be friends." I can't remember the exact quote, but you know, we will we will always walk together, and it's it's a proclamation of personal and political friendship, and you know, that brought Churchill to, to tears.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, um, yeah. So I mentioned a few minutes ago that you know I'd like you to. To illuminate another feature of, of political friendship, and um, and this one is um, may, maybe less familiar to our ears. I think we don't. I think we we think of leaders, political leaders, as uh, charismatic, uh, strategic, uh, visionary. Somehow or other, they collect the whole country in their arms or in their 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 public uh, philosophy, mm-hmm. and they. They kind of forge a a public mind, a public purpose, at their best, anyway. Uh, They can also be highly divisive uh, on on similar terms. But what about the notion, uh, and and I guess we're we're still relying here on Aristotle, what about the notion that friendship radiates throughout the polity so that even the leader uh, has some kind of friendship with the body politic, that is, with the the bread and butter, you know, Joes and Janes uh, across the realm in the case of, of uh, Great Britain or uh, across uh, the Republic in the case of America. Yeah. But in the case of Churchill, yeah. is it is it right to say that he, uh, we know that he had um, a touch, Both well, the man could speak, yeah. uh, one of our greatest records yeah. of, of the last century, maybe in the, in the whole modern world, he certainly had yeah. that touch. Is that an expression of his
1: friendship for the people of Great Britain or is there something I think it is. Way? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because to say he had the touch also implies that he knows where to put the touch, right? He knows how to direct his rhetoric and how to draw out the, the all the sentiments, the passions, the highest ideals of the people he leads. He's a leader. Yeah. And a leader needs to get the best out of his people, whether it's a prime minister, president, or a football coach. Yeah. So he has to know what makes them tick. I don't know. There's this movie, um, uh, The Finest Hour, or Darkest Hour, I'm sorry, where Gary Oldman plays yeah, Churchill. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen it. It's got oh, yeah. this... Um, Scene, which was kind of controversial because it takes a lot of liberties. It, just, it portrays a... I know exactly Churchill what scene you're going to talk about. Yeah, that, that never happened historically, but I'm actually a defender of that scene because it's poetically true. It's not historically true, but it's poetically true. So the scene has Churchill, sort of right before he, he kind of makes, makes his um, blood, sweat, and, and tears speech, and it shows him in a state of indecision, and he goes for a walk, and, and, and he goes down to the, the, the subway, the underground. And he takes a ride on the underground, and he kind of con- consorts with, the, you know, the people. Yeah. And and um, the people, uh, you know, recognize him, and they they they, they congratulate them. They they love him, and they, they, one of them starts to recite parts of this Macaulay uh, poem, of, uh, like what's the name of it now? Um, it's the Macaulay poem that Churchill himself recited by memory when he was at Harrow and uh, proved to his headmaster that he was not an idiot because he wasn't very good at reciting Latin, but he could res- res- recite the fullness, like all 2,000 lines of this Macaulay okay. poem. And, and in that scene in the movie, they cite just a few of those lines, as a, I, I think as a way of poetically portraying Churchill's bond with the British people. Now, it's not, didn't happen historically, and in some ways it's even politically misleading because it seems to suggest that Churchill is being led by the people rather than him leading the people. All that is true, but what it does capture in a very vivid way, maybe the only way you can, you know, these things are hard to portray in, in a movie, so maybe you have to take extreme poetic license to get it across. But what it does display is a, that kind of touch, that kind of bond that he had, and you know, even today, you speak with with British people who grew up during that time, or her, you know, whoever that yeah. um, they it has a special place for them. Listening yeah. to the speeches over the radio yeah. and what his leadership meant, yeah. and you can't have leadership unless you also have that kind of bond. I'll call it friendship follow what you may, um, with the people who you leave. Yeah, yeah. You, you have a, uh, from another film, uh,
0: Dunkirk, um, yeah. uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, Dunkirk. You had that scene towards the end of the film where one of the soldiers who's been uh, rescued um, is riding in a train, reading uh, a text, and then the, the voiceover is Churchill, you know, we will fight him, you know, here, we'll fight him there, you know, very powerful, yeah. very moving, and, yeah. Yeah, and compelling, you know, really. Um, yeah. Hey, let's talk about a couple of um, the more, diff- some of the more difficult themes uh, or yeah. motifs on friendship that Aristotle runs with. Um, you know, we can say a lot about what it takes to live a good life in Aristotle, to roll, 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 roll out all the, the conditions that are necessary. But one thing he seems to be very keen on that I, I think is, might, uh, might be worth talking about is the role of memory. That is, uh, you know, you, the good man recalls the good things he's done. It's very important for him. I, I wonder if there is, in your considerations of friendship, political friendship, uh, and particularly the friendship between Churchill and others, friendship and uh, or Churchill's friendship with FDR, does memory play a role? Uh, and you, yeah. you already intimated that by the, the way that um, his biography of, of his ancestor Marlborough, the Duke of yeah. Marlborough, yeah. yeah. played such an important role. But but anything else that uh, that comes to mind that that Aristotle's. Emphasis on memory might illuminate yeah. for us in terms of political friendship in Churchill.
1: Yeah, I mean, memory is almost everything yeah. for Churchill. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: um, when he is one of the things that makes him so such a powerful leader is, is that he can tap into the, the, the biggest well of memory for the British people. And in fact, history is this collection of memories, and memory is is not just this or that happened in the past, but memory is in the present. Um, And so, the figures of the past, the deeds of the past, these are all the. um, I mean, what's Lincoln's line? uh, the mystic chords of memory, right, chords, right. Yeah. right? These are things that tie one generation to the next, yeah. and those are in memories. And what Churchill tries to do is bring them all to the present in, in some way. So he's kind of the embodiment, I suppose, of English history. Yeah, I mean that's you can see it in you know John F. Kennedy, uh, you know, went against his father. John F. Kennedy loved Churchill, and he's got this great line of. Churchill brings the English language into battle,
0: and, and
1: that—that's—that in a way is bringing the memory and everything that's in there yeah. to, to the present. I, I suppose it's—he yeah.
0: also exercised kind of an Augustinian uh, version of memory and natty. For Augustine, the memory is where are what we know and what we love are collected. You know, and, and Churchill yeah. knew a lot about and loved a lot about England and. And had that just right. just right there. Maybe maybe that was part parcel of why he was so good at speaking uh, to the yeah. public. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Aristotle at one point says uh, one kind of friendship one ought to avoid is uh, <laughs> you, you wouldn't wish uh, your friend to be a friend with a god, right? Uh, because it, for, in Aristotle's yeah. mind, somehow or another, that would that would kind of destroy, it would separate or divide us from yeah. from one another. But uh, yeah. with with the Christian differentiation, the, the yeah. friendship with God uh, kind of breaks open, uh, yeah. and, and, and takes hold in Western culture. Does that make a difference for how we understand Churchill? Like uh, the that yeah. that movement from ancient Greek notion of friendship to
1: the mm-hmm. Christian differentiation and, and
0: onwards as the the West takes hold.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's an interesting comparison with with Aristotle's comment, because that, I mean, for Aristotle, that kind of leads him to an impasse of not just how he understands friendship, but perhaps his whole virtue ethics, (laughs) right, because, you know, know, the, one of the impasses he, he remarks upon is that, well, the gods, if they're the highest things, how come they can't enjoy the highest things, which is friendship, right? They're all yeah. kind of by themselves. And of the course, humans, according to Aristotle, can't experience friendship with gods. And then, you know, the notion of sort of the divinization of, of greatness in the, in the ancient world. I mean, Augustine's a great critic of all that. You know, Julius Caesar becomes a god. You know, that's that that, that paganism right there. But kind of ethically, what it speaks is a kind of anti-humanism that you know suddenly you have this vast um, difference between the so-called great who end up you know it can be cruel to the rest of us, right? Um, And and. You know, some have, have suggested, you know, Aristotle speaks of magnanimity, right? Or the, the term he uses is, is megalosuchia, right? Which gets translated, kind of Latinized, as magnanimity. And if, if you kind of keep within the strictures of a paganism, the magnanimous person could be very cool. Um, you got the. Dogs going to the doorbell, right? Um, Churchill would have approved of that, I think. (laughs) He would have approved of that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So, but with Churchill, there's a kind of leavening of that sharpness that you find in a kind of uh, sort of extreme version of the classical vision of magnanimity. There's a kind of... um, leavening with Christian charity. Now, by st- saying that, you get into kind of uh, uh, you get into a kind of um, uh, sort of raise a bunch of questions because, you know, was Churchill a Christian? Well, in any kind of orthodox way, it's really hard to, to affirm that. Um, he wasn't a regular churchgoer. He has this Famous comment where he says that he is, you know, a buttress of the church, he's not a pillar, right? <laughs> uh, so, what does that mean? Buttresses are on the outside, they're not yeah. on the inside. Oh, yeah. You know, what does this mean? Um, you know, the, famously, he seems not to have believed in the incarnation of Jesus, um, seems not to have believed in eternal life. So, you know, just where does he sit, theologically? Um, there's been some more recent work, actually, that's been done that kind of suggests that there's more to his appreciation indeed may maybe orthodox Christianity than maybe people have noticed. But at any rate, regardless of his the question of his faith, in terms of morality, um, Churchill very much appreciated and was a big defender of what he called Christian civilization. He called that many times, and he gave a very powerful speech on um, the, the, the power of Christian civilization. And one of the things he says, not uh, of, of ancient Israel even, was that, you know, for all the greatness that you find in the Greek philosophers, none of them could rise, raise themselves to the level of insight of recognizing man's equality before God. That was the achievement of the Israelites, not of the Greeks, not of Greek philosophy. And, you know, Churchill throughout his life was a big fan. Uh, he had very close relations with uh, with Jews. He had a great appreciation for the ancient Israelites. He even has a wonderful essay on Moses as a political leader. Um, and there's something about Judaism, there's something about Christianity, too, that affirmed this fundamental equality, um, which takes a bit of the edge off the inequality in the classical vision that you find in an Aristotle, for example. So there, so if, 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 Chris, if, if Churchill was magnanimous, uh, he was, you might say, magnanimous in a... In a more Christian way yeah. than perhaps in a, in a way that uh, you'd find it in Aristotle. I and mean, Boris Johnson, the uh, British prime minister, before he became prime minister, he published a, a lovely book on Churchill. And is kind of, you could see Johnson, who, you know, he's classically trained, um, and you can also see him kind of um, mine. Uh, Churchill for the depths of, of, of wisdom so, so so Johnson can learn something. But he, he draws a what I think is, is not a very accurate comparison. He says that Churchill's kind of moral code was Homeric. So he kind of lived in the mindset of myth and heroism that that Johnson uh, associates with Homer and the, and the heroes of the Homeric epics. Well, they were pretty cruel guys, <laughs> you know. If you think of Achilles, or even Odysseus, um, that's not Churchill. That's not Churchill. Churchill. Churchill's ethos was formed, I, I think, by something. If there's, if it's formed by Homer, it's certainly leavened by a kind of Christian, Judeo-Christian ethos as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in another. Uh, experience I had in two
0: thousand and seventeen, when my wife and kids and I were in were in Europe, uh, we were we went to the uh, War Rooms, Churchill's War Rooms oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. underground, uh, and uh, we were there. And uh, moments at moments after we came out and we t- we took the turn toward Westminster Abbey, and just at that moment, uh, the. Westminster Bridge terrorist attack happened. I don't know if you remember oh. that in 2017, and we heard the gunfire yeah. of the police, you know, taking down the terrorists and so forth. It was a, a startling experience, uh, but um, but you know, made the day uh, stick in my head even you know more because of, of yeah. the, uh, kind of the contrast between. The parties, you know, historically uh, in in the nineteen forties, and there uh, just a few years ago, what was going on? But I, the the war rooms. The, I actually went to the war rooms right after they opened in nineteen eighty four, and uh, both oh, wow. trips, um, I was just uh, just stunned at the constraints within which uh, Churchill and his team had to work, and and I, I wanted to ask uh, this is kind of my my penultimate question about what that meant for uh, friendship among the, the team. You know, to, you know, on one level it just it seems so obvious it's just incredibly uh, stressful and uh, yeah. so restrictive it, it had to take its toll on, on um, yeah. people's health and on their, uh, their sensibilities and it must have really strained uh, work relationships. But I wonder, did, uh, in your consideration of Churchill on friendship, mm. does that play a role in, in how you understand him? his, his yeah. work
1: down there yeah. yeah I never really kind of drew that connection so thank you for for, for raising it um, I mean you, know, you read the biographies in the, in the histories um, a lot of it emphasizes uh, you know the Churchill's going to the rooftops Churchill yeah. leaving London to go to Chartwell yeah. <laughs> so he gets out a lot yeah. and uh, you can kind of imagine why right because if you're in a situation things you know, you can get too intimate with people, and then you get sick of them. And then, and especially if it's a very intense situation, yeah. um, in order to preserve the relationships, you kind of need to get away from each other yeah. a, a, as well. Um, but there, yeah, I mean, it certainly makes sense. There's a kind of common suffering, and you know, you you've also, as leaders in in the bunker, um, you know, you're living it.
0: Yeah,
1: you live the same. Fate as the people of Britain, who you're leading. So there's no, you know, vast distinction of the, the British population and their leaders way off, safe in their in their summer palaces, right? No, yeah. they're they're right there. So um, whether they like it or not, the situation is is right in front of them and on top of them, obviously. Yeah. 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 John, and, I mean, Churchill's the sort of guy who'd revel in that, too. Yeah. I'm sure some of his cabinet members, they probably couldn't stand it. But yeah. Churchill, he, he loved that. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I remember the um, learning that he would sneak out of the quarters in order to take uh, one of his uh, several-a-day baths. <laughs> he just had to make sure he got his bathtub <laughs> bath in. Uh,
1: yeah, 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 he had to have his comforts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: But, and so let me uh, cl- bring us to a close with this final question. It's a little, a little wide open, but I thought it'd be really helpful. M- most of our audience, uh, John, uh, as I mentioned earlier, most of our audience uh, consists of, of school teachers, secondary teachers like you know, I was for so many years. And, uh, so, so most of us are not college professors. But I, I thought that it, you could speak um, to what you learned from Winston Churchill. And your study of him about a friendship between uh, colleagues, uh, professor, professor, teacher, teacher, and then all of us to our students. What, any insights that you could lend about uh, friendship in that regard?
1: Yeah, what did I learn about Church What did I learn about friendship from, from Churchill? Well, I guess um, this doesn't quite answer the question, but one of the main things was I finally kind of understood what political friendship means. Right. Uh, the, the, the philosopher Leo Strauss famously said that he didn't understand magnanimity and what Aristotle meant by magnanimity until he had learned about Churchill. And similarly, I didn't understand political friendship until I learned about Churchill. And I guess probably the, the biggest thing was an appreciation that politics is an, a craft that it's it's different. It has its own characteristics, its own purposes, its own aims. But the need for one-on-one relations, the need for personal relations, the need to cultivate trust and friendliness, and probably you know an inclination towards trust and friendliness rather than it's, than its opposite and distrust and, and skepticism is probably. Um, you know, something that, that we all need to practice and um, has, a, has a place in all walks of life, whether you're you're a politician or a teacher or you know, a member of your, your community. So Churchill is very insistent on not just the face-to-face meetings, but also the cultivation of a kind of friendliness amongst us all, and that helps a long way. And in a time of political polarization and distrust, um, I think is probably a, a good lesson for all of us to take to heart. I totally agree. And I'm so
0: grateful that you uh, carved out a chunk of time for us in your, your busy and very important schedule to, to share your thoughts about Churchill, about history, about politics and friendship. Thanks, John. We really appreciate it. All of us do at uh, Kane Academy. I want to do it again. With you, and we'll talk about something else because uh, uh, you, you got a lot on
1: your <laughs> mind, and really you, know, you say it in such a wonderful way and with such good cheer. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Andrew, and I, I certainly enjoyed my conversation with you.
0: Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Sources. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with John Van Hiking. You can learn more about his study of Churchill by visiting the website MontrealReview.com. John posted a wonderful essay there on the very topic we just discussed. Look for the May 2021 edition of the review. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep the conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our producer is Helen Gaworski. This is Andrew Zorneman, your host. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks again for listening to Sources.